Welcome to Lady Fiction 2022. My name is Stephanie Schaefer. I'm an American Studies Scholar currently based at the University of Vienna in Austria. And I am happy to kick off the new year and another series of Lady Fiction podcast hosted by Hamburg's Amerika Zentrum. Lady Fiction is dedicated to reading women in America, women artists, women authors, and women's issues in the present and in the past, and in the moments when these appear to fuse. One such moment, for me, returns every year weirdly with the celebration of Black History Month in the US. Now it's February 2022, and we're marking one year of the Biden presidency, and we're updating the legacies of black thinkers and feminists, such as the late and great Bell Hooks. In our first episode of Lady Fiction for 2022, we will look at the present again through the lens of the past with a particular focus on black feminism and women celebrities. And here with me is an expert on this topic, Dr. Sam Pinto. Sam is the author of the monograph Difficult Diasporas, the transnational feminist aesthetic of the Black Atlantic, published with NYU in 2013, and the winner of the uh, Modern Language Association's William Sanders Scarborough Award. She's currently a fellow at the National Humanities Center in North Carolina, and in 2020, Dr. Pinto published Infamous Bodies, Early Black Women's Celebrity and the Afterlives of Rights with Duke University Press, which I should say was one of my favorite reads in 2021, uh, and which will be the cornerstone for our talk today. Sam's work engages uh, feminist theory to rewrite both, and this is a quote, who we include in the history of African-American and African diaspora culture, and how we think and write about race and gender as political categories. Hello, Sam. It's so great to have you. Hi, Stephanie. It's so great to join you today, even though it's it's embarrassing to hear one's work described. <laughs> I'm super happy to have you, and I'm excited that we can actually take this opportunity to, to talk about it a little more and to evaluate contemporary events. So I'm super happy to have you. Let's maybe uh, start by thinking a little bit about the opening of your book, which struck me right away, because you open with Beyonce. And, you know, as an academic writer, the big question is always, oh, I'm writing a book. How do I start? Where do I pick my, my people up? You know, do I want to position myself as a super academic, dire writer person? Or do I try to, to, to grab them, maybe by the hair, <laughs> and uh, um, uh, introduce them to something that they might already know and knew? And you chose to do this with Beyonce, contemporary pop singer, and her linkage to a potential movie about... Uh, Sarah Bartman, who is a figure of the 19th century. Can you talk me talk to me about, you know, that choice of opening and how you story black feminism through this opening? Of course. And and, and I just want to make the connection that as both of us talk about popular culture, 
as well as do our like literary readings, right, of, of some, some heavy books and other things. It's always a trick of sort of legitimacy, right? Uh, um, even though that's sad because popular culture, as I'll talk about, and celebrity, I think, are constantly devalued partially because they're in a kind of feminized public sphere that people want to dismiss. And, you know, part of my will to open with Beyonce is, of course, as you joked, right, to grab them by the hair, right, is, of course, because Beyonce is such a juggernaut. And I wanted to open with that kind of articulation of the ways that we're still fascinated by Black women celebrities in sort of mainstream white and Black and multi-ethnic and transnational popular culture and the ways that we're always negotiating between contemporary celebrity and these older forms and histories and legacies that come through. So I, I really wanted to make that connection strong right from the beginning to say the question of how we represent these characters, you know, these figures from history who were real through our contemporary idiom keeps coming up, keeps recurring, because that's, you know, basically the the gist of my book, that we keep re reuptaking these figures. And that the question is never really about, I mean, it's about the figure themselves, but it's always about the contemporary as well, right? It's always about the fiction of who this person was, who they should be, how we should represent them. It's always a battleground around representation mm -hmm. and interpretation. Um, and Beyonce's life and work itself is already up for grabs, not just with inter critical interpretation of her and her work, but, you know, with the Morgan Parker po poetry that I, that I talk about in both the intro and the conclusion, it's so deeply there as she wants to register how Beyonce is already a looming figure through which we mediate ourselves mm -hmm. rather than trying to uncover some great truth about Beyonce. And that's, that's yes, the Bartman exactly. connection for me too, right? It's, it's never really about Bartman. It's about what we're saying about ourselves, right? In this moment by reinterpreting this, this figure of, you know, tragedy from the past. Yes. So quickly, before we talk a little bit about Sarah Bartman to update our listeners to, to her particular story, it's intriguing that Beyonce is linked to this, which is on the one hand, it's it was a it, it turned out it was a hoax. So um, she said she was not interested yeah. in a film project or there was no film project. So this, again, is a gossipy setup that made we way. Were, yes. And if we were religious studies scholars, we call it apocryphal. <laughs> right. And so, like, I'm really interested in the ways that we think yeah. about gossip in one way. And then we yeah. have a whole other genre of thinking about this when it happens in other realms. But yes. Yes, exactly. So that is that is a kind of it's it's non-official. It's kind of fake. And it's also not tied to any notion of authenticity, reality as researched by long archival research, neither with Beyonce nor with Sarah Bartman. But uh, and this is something that struck me when I looked at your at your own description of your own research. The political and aesthetic histories of black women interest you who erupt onto the public stage. And this is exactly the thing. So um, what speaks to me so much is 
this eruption, <laughs> uh, which I like, but also the performative and the stage metaphor that is stuck here because it takes us away from books and libraries into a public sphere that is governed by the physical, the performative, also the living, breathing thing that, you know, can be mediated, is often mediated through, let's say, Beyonce's own stagings of her motherhood, her self-iconization as a feminist. I think that was a Dior t-shirt she wore that, you know, or became a Dior t-shirt then that became marketable. So it's about agency and, and self-staging, but it's also about the reception and uh, the description or the response, emotional, only semi-intellectual response <laughs> to events like Beyonce's shows or Sarah Bartman's case, appearance, performance, whatever you want to call it. So it, it's something that goes beyond this archival and against it that jars with authoritative knowledge as we know it and maybe also have to learn, have, have learned to go by. You know, that resonated with me so powerfully because I'm so interested in the ways that we consider our intellectual and critical engagements as free from those attachments when they are deeply not. And in many ways, right, the whole book is about not just how, not just reception studies, which celebrity studies has done beautifully. And Sharon Marcus's book really, really, really talks about feminized audience and reception mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. what she calls the drama of audience that, that I think is, is so powerful, right? And Joe Roach before her and it really takes to that as well, though he, he thinks a lot about their performer. But the book is really about our own critical attachments and the way yes. that they have all of this like emotion invested in them. But we tend to read them as, you know, rational or archivally based or true or recovering something. And I really wanted to undo that and, and put a focus on not just the way artists reinterpret, right, and reinvest these figures, but the way, as you are pointing out, audiences and sort of reception, public reception, gossipy reception, et cetera, does, but also the way critics do, right? And want to reinvest with the authority of the archive or even in our moves away from it in the kind of Cydia Hartman critical fabulation way of doing it fictionally, right? But sort of getting at something truer from that. And I think for me, I'm always interested in destabilizing that truth not just away from the archive, which of course is racist and misogynist and tells an official story, but also looking at these alternative archives for sort of thinking about how people invest their emotion and their emotional responses and, and what they want from the public sphere and what they want from politics. And I think mm -hmm. I'm always interested in investigating that, not to perform virtue, but instead to sort of perform uncertainty and say, yes. what is it? What is it that we, we really want? The other thing is, and, and here I'll sort of think about friends who work on periodical culture in earlier periods. And so a great scholar, um, Nush Powell at Purdue, who w writes about pirates and dragons and all kinds of cool stuff, you know, she would just sit and say, like, how could we not think about how these figures, these texts were released and were circulated, right? Because it was not just in 
these novels, it wasn't people actually looking at archives. It was people circulating in the street. It was people looking at performances. It was people knowing about performance culture, not even seeing someone like Sarah Bartman live the way many of us have not seen Beyonce live, including myself, um, yeah. right? That that they circulate in these other sort of gossipy ways and registers and in terms of our contemporary media culture in the same way that, you know, folks don't talk about the way novels were serialized, even though that is yes. so key to thinking about their reception, not the form we have now. And so I'm just, I'm really, really interested in our critical attachments to what is and to our contemporary moment and the way we keep inevitably placing them on both contemporary objects, but also those those older figures. And I mean, intriguingly, and this is the last point that I want to pick up before we talk about one rendition of Beyonce with Morgan Parker's poetry. Obviously, the framework for this is is also the conception of popular culture. And you talked about this already, talking about feminized audiences or inscriptions of, of, of certain values onto popular culture as being non-rational and for this reason mitigated in, in research, but also in a kind of a weirdly vested public sphere where you get who gets prizes, uh, what is considered art, what's not considered art, what, you know, what roles do museums play in this and how do we break up the concepts of the museum and the archive? And uh, before we turn to Parker, I wanted to to highlight again this, this great concept by Sadia Hartman of critical fabulation, because when I read up on this, so, so Sadia Hartman um, in 2008 published an article Uh, that's called Venus in Two Acts, which enacts the practice of critical fabulation. And in the meantime, and it, it basically consists of, of kind of imagining, telling the story, but acknowledging at the same time yet that you can't tell it because you don't have any historical resources for it. Uh, and these histories are not recoverable, but making something out of it to render it more real or less than real or differently. So Sadia Hartman's Critical Fabulation also became a themed gallery at the MoMA, at the Museum of Modern Art in New York City. So while, of course, we are in the pandemic and you can't go anywhere, you know, that will be something where I felt an urge to say I would love to go see uh, how that Critical Fabulation part is staged at a museum in a, in a gallery as, as modern art, because it also means canonization when it's there, but at the same time, of course, it means critically investigating the epistemology of the museum as such. And, you know, asking yourself as a viewer, why do I go? Uh, what do I see? Um, and how do I respond to this? So, okay, Beyonce is a work of art. I think we can agree <laughs> without even, you know, mitigating her into the popular culture realm. Um, and she has become ingrained in Morgan Parker's contemporary African-American poetry. So Morgan Parker is an African-American poet who has published several collections. And one is called There Are More Beautiful Things Than Beyonce Poems. And she has uh, various poems that, are, that have Beyonce in the name, next to the title of the collection, of course. And we need to talk about what she does with Beyonce and how she fuses all the different strands of what you just talked about. 
So would you care maybe to read um, the poem, Beyonce is sorry for what she won't feel for oh, us? Oh, yes, wonderful. And I have had to read this a number of times because I teach this in my giant 850-person lecture class. Wow. So I'm happy to think about it. That, that lecture is a survey of American Lit for Gen Ed requirements here mm -hmm. um, in the U.S. And I say that to say I frame it all around the idea of celebrity And so we talk about like uh, canonical authors as celebrities yeah. and we do a constant refrain of like, what is America and how is America stood as a celebrity? And this sort of caps off right along with a few, we do different America poems and even songs. We do considering West Side Story, just the remake just came out, right? We do America from West Side Story as well. So I wanted to point that out. So Beyonce is sorry for what she won't feel as a, as a poem that is based on Beyonce singing the national anthem at the Obama inauguration. The Capitol's so icy, I see my perfect breath. It looks like a body on its knees. Most days I strut my figure on lock. A nation of weaves assembles at my Jimmy Choo's, gazes into green light and falls asleep. First lady of desire, I pant for our future. Like America and wine, I am all legs, a sheepskin bleached and dyed, left in the sun. Dear Sunday, you are a rash like tresses falling to shoulders, pink highlights humming the sky like a tease. How do you feel in moonrise, the stomach growl of life slowly closing? Do you wonder about escape, the blank, quiet frontier? I mouth free and home into a crowd, but they only hear gold extensions. I listen for prophecies from my daughter's sticky mouth. While I pick her hair, she cries. I say, never give them what they want when they want it. Thank you. It's a great poem. It's an amazing it. poem. It puts Beyonce on the scene of politics, qua politics, right? An mm. inauguration, the way we think about male celebrity around uh, the political public sphere. And obviously these things change and dovetail and women are in the public sphere in you know, traditional arenas of politics as well. I'm not trying to totally separate them, but I am saying as an avenue, you know, the public sphere of politics, right? The political, as we think of it in terms of um, political power and holding office, I mean, literally was not available and then de facto was not available to black women. And we could even think about your work uh, on Michelle Obama in relationship to this, of course, too. Yeah. And, and she has a great poem uh, with Michelle Obama's sort of faux interiority going with that as well. Um, so I am just so interested in the ways that this doesn't, this poem is always working with the ways that black women are looking at themselves being looked at, right? Yes. So the issue isn't yeah. representing a real Beyonce. Mm -hmm. It's representing what it's like to be looked at. Yeah. And to be rendered into an object, but not just as a, as a commentary on how that is suspicious and negative. Right. And I think here, you know, the, the actual reference of Jimmy Choo's, right? These very fancy, expensive shoes. That, yeah, that are a mark <laughs> of capitalism, which is part of why this is so 
you know, that feminized celebrity culture is so devalued and so suspicious, right, in an academic culture that wants to think that certain venues and institutions are or should be beyond that, right? Mm. Um, Or we should always be skeptical of that, even as we see it in other realms. Instead, it really tries to think about, you know, what are the markers of power in this feminized culture? What are the markers of also like luxury and desire and ambition and takes that seriously, but not by trying to render Beyonce as like a real person. Yeah. Instead, it's yeah. just like, what is it like to hold all of this desire? What is it like? What does it feel like to be an object in both negative and positive ways? Right. And then it also references these ideals of the national anthem in the U.S., right, of free and home and thinking about what it means to have a black woman perform those at the inauguration Mm -hmm. of the first African-American president. And and of course, there's controversy over the fact that uh, it's called, of course, she lip syncs. And then when she gets called on lip syncing, the next day she holds a press conference and sings it and is like, you know, F you, everyone. I can sing this anytime I want. You try singing in the cold, right? Yeah, yeah. So of course... You know, what, 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 what I find is so great is th- to pick this moment and this performance because the inauguration is the, you know, civil religion moment. It's, it's a pure festivity. Technically, you don't really need it. You nope. know, the transition of power is something that you can't see. It just happened magically yeah. from one presidential body onto the next presidential body at this given hour. And that's the celebration that, you know... That is what is celebrated here, but it's celebrated here with a super tight script every time again uh, with the assembly of so many uh, citizens on the lawn at the steps of the Capitol. It's a the ultimate celebration of the national body put onto the pedestal of, uh, you know, emotional yeah. desire. Performance it's really- and ritual are yes. part of our, and, and, and fiction, right? These are part of every aspect of life, the idea that what we're trying to do in the purest, most rational, most virtuous, most just form is get rid of performance and ritual as part of politics, mm-hmm. I think is a real reaction yes, against exactly. the ways that it has been, right? And again, this sort of search for authenticity isn't, isn't what we're at here. Instead, it's, you know, direct, you know, how do you feel? Exactly. It's the feeling. And yeah. you need that moment of national affect yeah. <laughs> and of, 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 you know, community feeling. I mean, it's broadcast, it's it's reachable, it's watchable for everyone, even if you're not there. Yeah. But you can also uh, be skeptical the... of it, right? And yes, it includes exactly, the skepticism yeah. as a feeling, right? The poem doesn't pretend it's smarter than that. And I think that's exactly, what I really yeah. appreciate about Parker's work, even as it sort of critiques the surrounding scripts of Beyonce and how overpowering they are for everyday black women's subjectivity. It doesn't do it by assuming it's smarter than Beyonce, if that makes sense, or it's smarter than wanting and, and, and imagining Beyonce. It doesn't answer the questions for us. So what do we make of the feelings aspect? We just talked about the need to feel the nation state renewed at each inauguration and the title of the poem is Beyonce sorry for what you want feel and there's a question in there mm. how do you feel in moonrise the stomach growl 
of life slowly closing? Do you wonder about escape, the blank, quiet frontier? What's with the feeling? I mean, I think the suggestion is that one doesn't, that, that no one feels the way they should, right? We think about these mass events as you're talking about the performance of inauguration. It produces lots of feelings, right? And here you've got the suggestion that Beyonce herself, right, in this persona poem is thinking about these things, but is also asking the viewer or the, the viewer and the listener in the performance of the national anthem at the inauguration, like, do you think about blankness? <laughs> do you think about your mortality, right? That one always has errant, complex emotional responses, even to the scripts that dictate life, as well mm -hmm. as those that one is quote unquote supposed to have, right? And I, I mean, I joke about this uh, and I say this as a parent, right? There's a show on our public television called Daniel Tiger. And there's this song there that says you could feel two feelings at the same time. And it's fairly revelatory to bring up constantly with one small children. But I really do think that the, the reason why I'm drawn to Parker's poetry around black women's celebrity is because it always is negotiating that very simple psychological sentiment, right? But one that I think critically we so often take as a like, don't be a sheep. You must totally agree with this and follow this script, yeah. right? If you yeah. listen to this, if you watch this. Yeah. And then we perform our critiques right on Twitter or in our work as if we are smarter than the feelings everyone else feels. Yeah. And I am the whole book is really about how we are not, right? And that even in the moment of these early black women celebrities, things are getting negotiated in complex ways that are not limited to acquiescence or resistance, right? That mm. are not limited to the feelings we think folks should have or should have had. And that even the press, right, even reception is actually complicated around these figures, even in their moment. It's not a progress narrative of critical reception and critical feeling. And I think that that's so significant to remember and to hold as we are critics who are invested in feminist and anti-racist justice, right, yeah. to say those feelings existed at the at the same time that we're not the first to articulate the complexity of it, the difficulty of it, the mixed feelings, right? So this poem, the idea, right? That, that Beyonce is also representing this complex, really difficult narrative of America, the stomach growl of life slowly closing, right? That's dark. That's yes, dark. Do yes. you wonder about escape, the blank, quiet frontier? That's a different way of thinking about engaging with the pleasures and luxuries of celebrity. That one is looking for escape, not in a like opiate for the masses kind of way, but in a like contemplating mortality and an escape from from the quotidian scripts of feminized, national, racialized life. Right? Like this is this is hard. It's also intriguing to me how much it is a return to the body through the body. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, of course, there's a hiatus on, on feeling. And feeling is, is first and foremost not 
wordable. You can't put it, you know, you can't express it because once you express it, you're already tagged. So she, Beyonce is on on the one hand, she is a vessel, but also she's, she's talking back through various installments here. This is not a, a simple post-colonial talking back uh, or writing back uh, to the empire or whatever. It's a, it's, a, it's a loop that goes and goes around that works between the body and the words and the body and the words. And what I, what I like, where I see a an, an really intriguing connection uh, in the difficulty maybe of this argument and also describing it is in how you frame your, your perception of black black women because you both you say you eschew both the heroic and the tragic as adequate frames so you don't go down the binary road you acknowledge the fact that this is there's agency but also there's the object status there's the heroine the self-empowered woman who acts but also the the body who has been acted upon or the history of the body who has been acted upon and had things done to her and this is such a such a great connector to Bartman, which Beyonce was also linked with. So, mm-hmm. um, and and which you know Morgan Parker also has a, a a really great poem on right that that I think in many ways tries to think about Bartman in a contemporary frame more as a as an erotic worker, writer, laborer, and um, but not in a like full recovery mode. Right again, it's. It's complicated, and I think um, so. Sarah Bartman was a figure in the early 19th century, right? Who was an indigenous member of uh, of an indigenous group in South Africa, what we now know as South Africa, who was, for all intents and purposes, enslaved, right? In in an indentured servant, right? In in Cape Town, who then is depending on which way you read the history, brought, kidnapped, tricked, agrees to go and perform as a sort of type, a, a, a savage type, uh, um, uh, and again, savage in quotes, in the UK with one of her enslavers and another, and, and who bills himself as her manager. And she's been taken up in many ways, but almost always in the tragic frame, with the exception, perhaps, of Barbara Chase Robot's novel. And of course, I talk a lot about Elizabeth Alexander's poem mm-hmm. about her, but mm-hmm. there's lots mm-hmm. of art about her as this sort of canonical, in a negative frame, right, for and model for Black women's embodiment yeah. and reception. And so she she travels and performs like in a faux Cage sometimes, right, in the UK, and eventually, and this is just over a five-year period, winds up in France, sold to effectively a, a scientific museum, and it performs in private, and then also is drawn, right, in her live body and dissected upon her death by a comparative anatomist, right, by the folks who were yeah. defining racial identity. So just as a quick, that's who Sarah Bartman is. Um, mm. And, she, and I, I should yeah. say that there was, a, there was an episode last year where we talked about Elizabeth Alexander's poetry and Marilyn Robinson's poetry, so the afterlives of, uh, of enslaved peoples uh, with Christine Fogg-William. So for those of you know the listeners who are interested you can go back go back there as well see this is the thing we talk about sarah bartman 
without using the name that was used for her. But Morgan Parker titles the poem with this name. And this the naming, again, nomenclature is such a, a power instrument. And we Morgan Parker uses the name alongside Beyonce to, you know, have her own layering of, of black female performers and, you know, acknowledgement of those histories or her stories. And the name is the tag, the reference point. But then again, we re retract from that and say, hey, that's the object name. Right. E even as Sarchi is like a Dutch diminutive of Sarah. And these are yes. like big debates about how to even. And, and, you know, Bartman, of course, comes from the Dutch settlers of Cape Town and, and of what is now South Africa itself. And, you know, again, Parker doesn't shy away from the work that she does and mm. and again just what you were saying there's agency in it and there's deep acknowledgement of injury in it right and she really writes through that vulnerable space of the limited loopholes for how we think about black feminist success and black women's embodied trajectories what they could even be under the best of circumstances Right. So it's so powerful in the same way that Elizabeth Alexander says, I am the family entrepreneur under the persona. Right. Which I remember talking about in a job talk years ago and everyone being like, oh, like, I cannot deal with this kind of characterization of her as a as a model minority. Right. As someone who wants to engage in this in business. Right. But but Parker directly says, right, business is booming. And I mm -hmm. am not loved in the way I want to be. So to include that as a, as a as a set of lines, right? And that's one one sentence, right? It's three lines of poetry, but it's one sentence. Those things exist together. How does one think about that and imagine both the interiority of that, but always imagine what does it feel like to be an object? How can I write from that space? Right. And 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 acknowledge the injury and also think about that performer as like a thinking, critical, feeling body at the same time. And hence imagining its listeners as that as well and its readers. And I think that's what's really significant to me about this work that, you know, we'll go and excavate when we're writing books about Beyonce in a hundred years. I mean, people are already writing about books about her now, but I mean, once we have this distance of history, right. And we claim something yeah. about her archive. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, how does poetry as a form work in this context? I find it appealing that she uses poetry to do what she's doing. Yeah, instead of like a novel about Beyonce. I think we think of the narrative form as the, you know, the lady fiction um, as the way to retell these stories. And instead, you get such, I hate to put it this way, I sound like such a critic of poetry, right? Like when I say you get such juxtaposition, right, to get three lines and have those things in one line and she mm -hmm. doesn't have to worry about like deep characterization that will allow you to hold these two things at once. Poetry really allows you to do something like say business is booming and I am not loved in the way I want to be in a single mm -hmm. sentence and in three lines and to break it up in a way that makes you focus on the tension 
that is embodied, right, in Black feminine subjectivity. And so to me, and I've been working with persona poems since the first book as well, right, with, with the Alexander and with interesting poems about Dorothy Dandridge that I talk about from Deborah Richards in that um, book as well that are divided into tables, right? And again, lots mm-hmm. of reactions around that, like this is just re-quantifying, you know, et cetera, yeah. et cetera, even though it's authored by a Black woman, et cetera. So just trying to really think about the persona poem as allowing a fiction at the same time that it it doesn't say it has to take place in narrative, right? What is critical fabulation that is asking you to interpret beyond plot, the plot? And yeah, I, that was something that I was going to ask you about because Sadia Hartman defines um, critical fabulation through Mika Ba's fabula um, definition and saying I'm reassembling the pieces of the fabula mm-hmm. that makes, you know, with progression into a narrative while poetry works differently. But the critical fabulation part that Hartman intends, I think, is still there, as you said, by with the jarring of mm-hmm. form where language is interrupted. Yeah, where tension is what's central. Yeah. Where tension is what's central. And, you know, I, again, if there was a connection, you're making me see, I think, a little bit, if there's a connection between the first book and the second book, uh, it's not just that that text, right, Alexander's text repeats. It's it's a, you know, it's my own fundal, fundamental suspicion of narrative as the only mode of representation or even the way we consume what appear to be narratives, right? So when we talk about narratives or discourse about many of these figures, and I talk about this in an article I wrote about Beyonce that also talks about Josephine Baker and Diana Ross and other figures, Mm -hmm. right, that we've got a plot for them, right, that says, oh, here's where they got political when they start talking about politics. And I'm like, oh, oh, no, right? This is happening (laughs) far before and not just in some like reclaiming feminine sexuality way, right? In a sort of, you know, second wave feminist 101 way, but in a way that says it's never a narrative that even in Bartman's day, there was conflict, there was tension around representation. It wasn't all the one narrative of white racism or a sort of lame narratives of white anti-racism, right? It was complicated, which doesn't make it any better. It's just to say that tension is where subjectivity lives, political subjectivity lives for me, and that that is constantly going against the strain of narrative as a teleology, as progress, and also one that constantly wrapped black feminism back into reiterating the tragic because if it's an if it's a teleology the ending is it it often looks the same right i talk a lot mm-hmm. about exception and example right and the ways that black women are forced to occupy both positions right either as like example of the race or exception And how they navigate that tension. And I always want to think about how that exists at the moment in terms of reception and that people aren't just receiving things as one narrative. And I think that's important. I talk about that with Sally Hemings, too. Right. The, the, The black community and the white community, everybody knows that Jefferson 
is having kids with her and lives with her. It's reported on during his second presidential candidacy. So again, this idea of the open secret, even as all of these like crazy, mostly white male historians are are hysterical in this period in the 70s and 80s around how that could never be so, right, that he could never do this. It was it was clear at the time. And so how do we how do we think about different listening communities, different interpretive communities, different receptive communities, not as monoliths, but and, and I think poetry can can weirdly get at that, right, um, with its tensions. And I mean, it's also the question of the salaciousness of this. Oh, deeply, um, deeply. You know, uh, specifically with Sally Hemings, mm-hmm. um, the, the scandal around yeah. it, um, um, the rule breaking and uh, the the raised eyebrows of, of what, you know, society perceives itself to be. And yet it was totally normalized, right? Like yes. it's, it's laws. Yeah. I keep talking about this idea that it's an open secret, right? Which is to say, this is the state of life under enslavement. There are all these, let's we would call them now mixed race, right? But these basically like white appearing children and mixed race children, there's there's a law because it's so common, right? So mm-hmm. how can it be a secret or a salacious, even as it's radically present so much so as to be enshrined in law that sexual coercion mm. and sexual assault and reproduction of various kinds are codified to like fall back into slavery by, you know, the, the status of the mother's birth, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm so fascinated by the way that all of the figures I'm looking at, like, are all figures of controversy and scandal, right? And are all towing this difficult sexualized line. And even even Wheatley with her sort of frail girlhood, right, and publicness um, and the way she's presented, right, as, as an exception and as an example of the race during during her time, how how that kind of deep eroticization of these figures and the the idea of scandal has to append to them and obviously that's that's foundational to celebrity culture in many ways but I do find it interesting to think about how the sexual aspect is one that again is both like hyper visible and then made invisible and then we Mm. uncover it and want to tell it in this particular way and Hemings is fascinating for this because of course because her story gets remade the most during this weird period where people felt like they could present a love story between a 14 year old and a 40 year old and like uh, who is, who are under enslavement, you know, enslaved master relations, enslaved and enslaver. It's really interesting to see the scripts we have for Hemings and then also the way we react to them now. Yeah. And this is a great transition, actually, uh, about uh, towards the second topic of your book, the question of rights, mm-hmm. um, which we haven't so much talked about. So it seems to me the rights discourse and the Enlightenment discourse that you use to frame your argument is, <laughs> I don't know if I can put this, this is going to be maybe a little bit polemic, but it's like the, the uh, very desperate attempt by the establishment to contain whatever the celebrity culture performance eruption onto stages does. 
the way that I read your book. So I, what I find super appealing is the, you know, the human rights discourse and enlightenment modernity as concept, which thinks and posits uh, white male subjectivity as and, and, and chains it to, to citizenship. And then, of course, excludes anybody's that are deviant from this norm, establishes white supremacy um, and, you know, reaches, builds the present that we live in. So uh, that rights discourse, while it's imbued with human rights and, you know, we've achieved so much and uh, so on and so forth, is actually sometimes seems to be working desperately <laughs> to do away with all the troubles that can't be put into, you know, canonical law or, um, you know, codified because they might threaten the order. Right. I think one of the things that uh, for sure inspired this book was critical human rights study as a field has been thinking about this for a long time, just sort of what the limits of law are, the way law focuses on civil and political wins, i.e. representational wins, but social, economic, and cultural rights become much more difficult, right, to entrench, to get past, right, or to, to enact, even if they are, right, in some ways put into play. And I thought about these figures that I'm writing about as, again, bringing that kind of critique of the constant tension of human rights back to the moment they were instantiated to say, well, that that mm -hmm. critique was embodied in these critiques around these limit figures who catalyzed the imagination of those who were engaging in these experiments, right, with Westphalian modernity, which had been around the Westphalian state, right? But this idea that this is the pure form, right? This is the free state. These are the buzzwords we're going to use is that Black women were actually central to negotiating that, even if not as authors, right, as objects of, of debate. And so I, I, I feel like it's so important to acknowledge the failures and difficulties and the ways that those discourses are trying to contain and keep order. And also the ways that, again, for me, it always goes back to the meta of how we do our work, how our own, even in, in fields that feel radical and like they want to upend that order, our own attachments to those imaginative terrains and even those metaphors and so the book really tracks that. Someone once derisively commented, like, you're one of those anti-freedom people. I'm not anti-freedom, right? But I am, I do question why the political left is still invested in it. Not because I don't understand freedom and autonomy as modes, but because those are modes that women, that black women, that black feminized subjects have never been able to live under. And I'm so much more interested in thinking what happens if we take the base or the quote unquote universal political subject as a black feminized subject, rather than what happens if we lift everybody up to the white male ascendant version of rights yeah. and freedom yeah. and autonomy, yeah. because freedom and autonomy are not the way most of the world's subjects lives. And also, it's not the way even those of us who feel we have access to those things more in, in Western bodies and white bodies, etc., myself included, actually exist in social scripts and the way it feels to be part of these iterative scripts. 
that aren't law, but feel also binding and containing. And I really want to be able to feel that and articulate a sort of sense of politics and the political subject that acknowledges those feelings and attachments to those scripts, even as it tries to widen it, right? That tries to think about what constraint feels like and what it might feel like to live under those because all kinds of kin and community claims are still scripts, right? They're still claims on your autonomy and on your capacity to imagine otherwise, right? There's always loss in freedom. And I, and I always want to think about that from a feminized subject position is another way to put it. Wow. Great. So in rethinking concepts like freedom, rights, human rights, from the subject positioning of the black feminized subject, I think this is a wonderful take for us for black this year's Black History Month as well to reconsider the foundations of a memory culture that celebrates Black History Month. How is it celebrated and how can we recalibrate it towards critically addressing its foundations? I think that works super well. Yeah, so it's been interesting to me. I was took my children to school the other day and I was a little bit late so I could hear the announcements and the it was the first day of February and the first figure that the announcements were talking about was Oprah and I was really interested in sort of both who else was on the list is Meghan Markle going to be on the list is Michelle Obama on the list I could imagine the trajectory right of like these sort of great exceptional black figures. And so for a moment, I just wanted to talk about how in thinking about celebrity culture and who would get talked about, right, that Oprah would get talked about, I think now Beyonce would get talked about, as opposed to like in girl group days, I don't think, you know, in Destiny's Child days, I don't think that Mm -hmm. she would necessarily, I think Serena Williams would be talked about. But like, I don't think Rihanna would be talked about, which is really Hmm. fascinating, sort of thinking about, I'm I'm interested in what the motherhood discourse will also do for her now, Hmm. um, and and to her celebrity. But I really want to emphasize that so much of this book also comes out of the absolutely, to say burgeoning is to underplay it, field of African-American women's history, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. which is really born out of the mentorship of uh, a handful of Black women historians, right, who, uh, and Black feminist historians who then built up students, right, and, and mentored them and did all of that. The explosion of history now that also wants to look at non-great figures at quotidian black women's lives as part of significant change. And I want to emphasize that as well, which is I'm interested in these figures because I'm also interested in those folks who are listening, watching, consuming black feminist culture who aren't in the spotlight And sort of think about how that is also a significant part of how one sees oneself, right? One forms a political subjectivity and to not dismiss that or be suspicious of that as only producing one devalued form of political subjectivity. It's also a great seek back to the opening where we started talking about the the notion of popular culture Mm -hmm. 
as being consumed in the everyday by the everyday person. Um, yeah. And I think, it, you know, that's the appealing part about this entire argument that it makes us reconsider our academic practice. Deeply. And, and, and I think our political practice and how, um, frankly, how scared everyone is, I think, to have any aspect of political culture be directly feel like it's directly connected to sexualization, uh, which is, mm -hmm. I think, all part of the sort of the salaciousness of these figures, um, but even the embodied kinds of performances that someone like Beyonce, who I think has definitely ascended to respectability, right, articulates is that there's always a fear of like, what is this representing? And it's, it's a real fear of sexualization yes. of the political sphere, even as we know, it's always already sexualized. So it might, it might behoove us maybe to close with, on the one side, having this, this academic practice commentary, mm -hmm. on the other hand, uh, reconsidering popular culture, and uh, also, you know, expressing our solidarity with the women um, who are, you know, have brought complaints, Title IX complaints against a Harvard professor. It's, you know, I'm an academic based in Europe, but I, I keep following this scandal that's ensuing in Harvard and the law case. And as it's happening right now, I think, you know, these are times where we see politics, academia and the sexualization threat working together in, in uncanny ways. Absolutely. And, and we'll people, have to see where this goes. Yeah. And people ask to narrativize that and become the figure or not become the figure. I mean, speaking about celebrity culture, both star culture, right. But then yeah. also at, um, refusing these women's anonymity and sort of making them have to come out with supposedly more compelling narratives, right. It, it's really something right to think about how power operates in the academy and to always question how we think about sexualization sexuality and feminism in our own work and our attachments to what we do who we are the institutions we're in to always treat that not just with skepticism for others but with ourselves and our own practices and our own ways of reading thank you I think this is a great conclusion to a super intriguing episode and a great kickoff for the 2022 season of Lady Fiction. We'll see where uh, this podcast takes us and uh, we'll see where our own conversations takes us into further uh, corporations. We'll see. I'm super excited to, you know, to have this as the first episode for 2022. And I'd like to thank you again for agreeing to come on, Sam. Thank you so much for inviting me and chatting. just so you know, once again, the views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the guests or the host, not the American Centrum, which does not take any institutional positions on politics or policy. Thanks again for listening.